welcome back, Startup House. So today's an interesting episode because most people are still locked up at home, uh, as am I in Australia. So we're talking about traveling the world, which I think is a little bit <laughs> um, difficult to swallow because a lot of us can't do that at the moment. But I thought maybe we could hear some stories about uh, my friend Lily, who has traveled to several different countries and also built a lot of amazing habits in her life. Um, so Lily is a serial entrepreneur who currently leads programs at New Campus. She started her first business at the age of 16, which is insane, selling shoes that garnered over half a million in revenue before she even graduated high school. In university, she started a second business, Austin International, which is ran international career boot camps and had over a thousand students and over seven figures in revenue. She is passionate about the emerging business, technology, and education industries. And what's really cool about Lily is that not only is she a kick-ass entrepreneur, but she's also been able to change a lot of habits in her life through some systems, which was an interesting article that she wrote, and I really want to dive into that today. And also, she's traveled the world and learned several languages, and I think there's a lot we can learn from that entire process. So hopefully you enjoy getting some secondhand travel experience. I'll catch you guys in the podcast. You're listening to Draper Startup Pass Podcast, the one-stop shop for exploration, connecting, and inspiration. We show you different pathways in life so you can decide what's right for you. We interview entrepreneurs and professionals all across the world. My name is AJ, a serial explorer and your tour guide. Welcome back, everyone. Um, As you've already heard the intro, so you already know what this is all about, but we're going to be talking about entrepreneurship, building habits, and traveling the world, which is somewhat saddening because everyone is stuck at home. So we're going to be hearing about Lily's stories about traveling the world while we're kind of just imagining it happening in our own heads, but hopefully it helps distract us a little bit. So Lily, do you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. Thanks for inviting me today. No worries. You're going to make us all feel sad and... uh, (laughs) and lonely but how how are you dealing with the current situation you guys are locked up right yeah i'm currently in singapore have been here um got back to got to singapore just before the lockdown um so found an apartment in like one day and then since then i've just been buying a lot of plants um and just like well we're just here in lockdown with my partner um, fighting for some like airspace to do all our meetings. <laughs> really loud in my background when I'm doing meetings. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. What are you doing to to keep busy? What's your social life like? Um, so I've been doing a lot of exercise with friends, so through Zoom, and I kind of realized that after this, you know, I probably won't ever go back to the gym. <laughs> because it's like three hundred dollars for a gym membership, and the point of a, a gym is to like meet and socialize with people, and like, uh, well, that's for me um, to do classes or like to um, keep like get accountability. And then I, I realized I could just zoom someone, play the video, and then that's basically my workout. So um, I've been doing that every day, and then I've been also like just like drawing um, and also doing some online courses with friends. So just doing like something productive 
whilst I socialize with people is really fun. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't think I'm used to the gym at home yet. Like I bought the resistance bands and like a bunch of stuff, but man, I, I miss the gym. I, I can't deal with like at home workouts. <laughs> Guess that's the first place you're going to go back to after the lockdown. Yeah, straight <laughs> straight to the gym. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going a little bit insane, but I'm doing these podcasts as a way to like get outside of my own head and into your head a little bit more. Um, nice. <laughs> so let, let's talk about entrepreneurship because that's what we're here to talk about. And I want to uh, dive a little bit deeper into um, what you were doing as a child, which is bit ridiculous i mean first of all you had a book that was published which you probably didn't want me to bring up but i'm bringing it up anyway and then you had a shoe company at the age of 16 um what i want to know is like what the hell was going through your head at the time that made you start a business yeah so yeah you're right like i grew up in a very artistic family Uh, my parents are both artists so growing up i had zero notion about business um, whenever I would hear my parents' friends, like daughters or like their sons, and they talk about them studying accounting or business, I was always like, so boring. <laughs> so I thought I was going to do um, animation in university. That's what I, I loved, Hayao Miyazaki films. Um, go to Japan or like do graphic design. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of like what I thought my life trajectory is going to be like what kind of so, artwork uh does your family do it's like music like drawing um, my parents, um do so they do um children book illustration so haha when i oh, i see <laughs> my book published i could get them to also illustrate my book mm-hmm. um that was because of a nestle competition um back in like 2006 or something like that and my Hi, uh, my primary school teacher submitted my um, my piece into a, the competition and then it got distributed by Scholastic and I could nominate a um, an, an illustrator to illustrate my book. And I was like, well, obviously I'm going to pick my parents. <laughs> so now, surprisingly, even though it's been, I don't know, 15 years or so, is it 15 years? More than that. Um, but I still get like over two, three grand every year from royalties um, from that book. That's insane. So, that's still going. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was like, I don't even know where this is sold. <laughs> I can't even find it anywhere. So I don't know how I'm, uh, I'm getting these. But I think it's from public school um, and also libraries around Australia lending because it's part of the lending rights. So that's how I get right. my work. Right, right. I see. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that was my first kind of, um, insight into residual income, right? Like I still get a few grand every year from doing nothing. How to set up passive income as a 10 year old. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I wasn't 10, I was like 13. I I can imagine the YouTube tutorial now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. So then anyway, so I didn't do anything until like, when I was 16, um, basically what happened was my parents used to own two stores in Darling Harbour um, and The Rocks. So mm-hmm. they were like galleries and they would, used to work every single day 
Um, they would take no breaks. They were like, and the rent there was ridiculous, like 10 K a week or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so obviously that was a very sustainable lifestyle. Um, there was a point where we didn't make a lot of money. There weren't a lot of people like touring to um, the rocks and Darling Harbour and stuff. So um, they decided to sell the shops and then they had to figure out how to make money um, in another way because obviously like illustrations um, and painting and stuff are commission-based and they're not very stable income. So they went back to China for three months and they left me um, by myself at the time with a hundred dollars. Um, what? And, <laughs> and I legitimately thought, Oh, that's it. That's it. So, um, wait, how old were you? You were 16. Yeah, I was 16. So I, um, yeah. So then I legitimately thought, Oh, that's, that's the amount of money that I have to use within three months. So when I ran out two weeks later, you know, I felt so ashamed. I was like, oh my God, I can't tell my parents. Like they're going to kill me if they find out that I already finished like using up the money. Mm. And in retrospect, obviously, um, when I think from their perspective, they probably just gave me a hundred dollars first. And then when I ran out, they assumed I would just ask them for more <laughs> and more to yeah. give the kid, you know, a thousand dollars in one go. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I would, but I totally was like, oh my God, they are going to kill me <laughs> if they find out that I used up all this money already. Cause I thought that was a lot of money at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. So then I did what every other kid would do, which was, um, like go apply for retail jobs, Maccas, KFC, um, anything you could think of. And I don't know, at the time, like, um, I was submitting all these resumes and I just wouldn't be able to pass the interview round. And mm. I was like, why don't they want to hire someone who's underpaid and underage, you know, like worker, yeah. Yeah. you know, um, or like 10 bucks an hour. But, um, yeah, just for some reason, I just couldn't get it. And at the same time, um, at the time that I was applying for these jobs, um, 16 was when that kind of like K-pop phase was happening and I was mm. really into K-pop and I really wanted these pair of shoes that everyone was like looking at, which was the Adidas Jeremy Scott wing shoes. Um, and so obviously in Australia though, we never get anything like we never get a lot of different types of, um, like different types of shoes we only ever get like one type or they're super super expensive so Mm -hmm. it costs like three hundred dollars um in retail and at the time i um had met this girl from la and um her parents owned an adidas outlet and so i messaged her on emerson and i was like hey how much are these shoes um if you sell them like wholesale so out of season ones because in the states obviously um they're always a season head so what are the ones that you want to get rid of um and so do you want to guess how much she said the wholesale was for the shoe yeah these are like limited edition sneakers right yeah there's like limited edition um format ones and there's also regular ones as well so like, I don't know, like a hundred, hundred bucks, 80 bucks. 
Nah. So it was $40. <laughs> oh, geez. Wait, <laughs> yeah, so what's the retail price? Um, I'm not sure about the American retail, but Australia is always um, a lot more expensive. It's like when you look at Calvin Klein um, or Tommy Hilfiger, etc. <clears throat> like if you go to the outlets, it's like dirt cheap, like $8 mm-hmm. for pairs of underwear. And then you go to Australia and it's $60. Mm. Um, so I don't know why, but it's just always like the price disruption discrepancy is super big. Um, but I was like, whoa, so cheap. And also it's because it's wholesale, um, Australian dollar was higher at the time, which is like, I wish that would, was happening right yeah, now. Yeah. Um, so I asked her, Hey, how much is it to ship one pair to Australia? And she said, Oh, you know, it's, um, also $40 to ship one pair. So then, um, I was like, oh, that's way too expensive to just to ship a pair. And she was like, if you order um, 20 though, like bulk buy, then um, the shipping is basically accounted for. So, you know, you you can you should find your friends and see if they want to like chip in and, and get a pair each. Yeah. I was like, okay, you know what? I will go to all my friends, um, ask if they wanted to buy. And at the time, I didn't even think, even think about raising the price. I was just like, hey, you guys want to get it for $40? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If- and order together for 20 then we get it for free and the surprising response was that all my friends were like there is no freaking way that is this cheap like it has to be fake there's no way it would be 40 dollars mm. and then i would explain to them it's wholesale price they're trying to get rid of the stock we're always a season behind the um you know and they were just like mm, i don't know so i was like okay that's really interesting that the price is the only issue so i went to another group of friends and i was like hey these shoes are $80 because at, at least if um, I don't hit 20 pairs of shoes, then you can, yeah, least, yeah. yeah I can cover your cost. Still, exactly. So yeah. then I was like, hey, $80. And it was really funny because um, one of my friends, he was from a private school, um, from boys' school, and he was like, hey, you know what? I have 20 friends um, that would want to get this, but what do I get out of it? And I was like, okay, that's really interesting. So I said to him, hey, you know what? If you can give me an order of 20 by the end of next week or the week and a half, then you can charge whatever you want as long as it's over $80. I'll take a $40 cut. And if you want to charge, you know, $250, you can take $170 cut if you want, as long as it's more than 80 And he was like, oh, my God, thinking in his head, like, what a deal. Right. So uh, my MVP was literally a Word doc of all the different colors of the shoes, um, an Excel spreadsheet where it was like um, shoe color, shoe size, and then um, their location. And then I had this really um, poorly done Facebook page. It wasn't even like a page. It was like a Facebook profile um, where I poured the shop Crystal de Jolie which is um, crystal jelly in French, but I'm not even sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's still up somewhere. Yeah. Um, But that was my MVP. That was it. Like I didn't have a website. I didn't have a business name. I didn't have anything registered. Mm -hmm. And then I went to nine other friends um, in different boys, private schools. So you name it, it was like Kings, um, Knox, you know, et cetera. And uh, I said, 
the same thing. Like if you can give me an order of 20 um, by the end of the week, then um, you can charge as much as you want. So then um, at the end of the week, they would send back all their orders. And because obviously I didn't have any money to pay for it, I asked them to give me a $40 bond per order so that, you know, what if you cancel on me and I'm stuck with a size 43 silver pair of shoes, right? Mm. So give me all the cash and I would go to my friend's mom and I would be like, hey, can I borrow your credit card up to order these shoes online? And she was like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you ordering? Um, but all the shoes came. So by the end of that week, I had made, you know, uh, 20 orders per person times 10 people, right? So 200 pairs of shoes times $40. So I made about $8,000 of profit. Holy in that. shit. Jeez. <laughs> that was one so, week. <laughs> yeah. So what was really surprising was that at least um, five people from the 20 who bought the shoes then come to me and be like, hey, do you want to, like, I heard about this deal. Can I also sell their shoes for you? Because um, I want to get in on these and, and obviously I have friends who would want to get these as well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people made a lot of money. We ended up expanding to different types of shoes as well. Had Jeffrey Campbell's, um, like, different types of Adidas shoes as well. Yeah, and just after that year, year and a half, yeah, I made about half a mil. I, I don't even know what to say to that. That's 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 crazy. <laughs> no one no one would have thought of that. Like, oh my god, that's that's yeah, and so it's like good. Such a, like, it's such a stupid. I mean, if you told me that now that oh, you should go do something like that. I'm like, that's not possible. Or like, it's just, I never realized how um, it was basically just looking at one problem at a time and trying to solve those things. But it was exactly, very right? like, yeah. intuitive. I, I didn't, I wasn't like getting hung over. Oh my gosh, I don't have the per- most perfect Facebook page. I don't have the most perfect website. Like I, did, I could do business without any of those things. So that's what... Um, yeah, really- you didn't even go into that thinking that you were starting a business. It was just you wanted some shoes. No, no way. Yeah, I just wanted to buy myself a pair of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you know, interestingly enough, I, I never scaled it or, or did anything with it. But like back when I was, I think, 15, I really wanted a desktop computer to like game with. Like I wanted a better gaming PC. So I went to my grandpa and I was like, hey, I want a computer. Can you buy me a computer? And he's like, why don't you build one? Like as a joke. And I was like, okay, yeah. uh, let me go figure out how to do that. And so I looked online and I realized, okay, you can actually build computers. And so after some convincing for my birthday, finally, like I, he drove me to the computer shop and I was like this 14 year old kid trying to like figure out what motherboard to get and CPU. And like, I think after like two weeks of like trial and error, like getting parts returned and like, getting free testing, acting like a kid. Like I didn't know what I was doing. We managed to build a computer. And then, you know, some of my, um, my family friends and like friends were like, Hey, that's cool. Can you, can you make us one? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then, yeah, (laughs) it became a business, but I never scaled it beyond like, you know, 
four or five people because then I had to study for my HSC. But um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting that, you know, intuitively as kids, we find problems and we kind of like solve them. But then later down the track, and I see this with lots of entrepreneurs who are just like trying to come up with bold ideas and not really thinking about the idea, uh, the, the problem behind it. That's so crazy. Um, isn't that how like IBM started? <laughs> yeah. Was I mean, yeah. Like one of the, I think people. Apple started that way as well. Oh, Apple started, yeah. Just like creating, um, computers or motherboards and then selling them. And it could have really potentially become something. I mean, even if I hadn't stopped the shoe business, maybe it mm. would have evolved something else. Um, but I think, Genuinely, though, I wasn't that very like that interested in shoes uh, as a business. It was just, I just wanted that. But it's it's crazy when you're a teenager, when you're a kid, um, you don't really think of failure that way, and you just want to do something for fun. And these things naturally can happen. Um, but now, yeah, it kind of makes me rethink my entire life strategy right now. Yeah. <laughs> I was, like I should just be doing stuff that I want to do, and then exactly. like not think about it. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly how I've been rethinking my life too. <laughs> well, I guess this is the podcast of like epiphanies and life-changing decisions. <laughs> um, so, so I wanted to know, and we, we spent a lot of time on that shoe thing, but I think that was super interesting. So I'm glad we spent that time. But <laughs> moving on to university, you started a yeah. second business. And I think it's the same thing, right? You saw a need. Well, what was the need this time around? And what was the business? Yeah. So it also, I also um, actually didn't intend to start this as a business at all. Yeah. I can see a trend. When I finished high school, uh, I was very interested in business now, obviously. And I thought, okay, first my parents were like cutting me, like because I was under 18 when I was making the shoe money, uh, all that money was then not liquidable. Like it was either invested um, or my parents also put it away for me. So then when I turned 18, my parents were basically like, hey, you're 18 now. We're going to cut off all funds. Like if you want to pay for your school fees, you're, you know, you got to pay us rent at home. If you want to live at home, you got to pay for all your bills, groceries, whatever. And, you know, it's kind of a lot to hear as an 18-year-old. But they told me um, since I was, like, younger, they did the same for my brother. So I was kind of thinking, okay, I need to, whilst I'm in university, maybe I don't want to be doing a business, but I need to be making money somehow. So then I registered for to be a cadet when I was in high school so that I could work at an accounting firm when I was in university and the for the like listeners, the basis of a accounting cadetship is that, you know, one of those big four, big five, like major accounting firms would hire you straight out of high school. And then, um, they would give you a four year contract and you would work for them full time and work, uh, study part time on a rotational basis until, until you graduate. And you can basically be, a uh, like go straight into their graduate program, etc. So then, I thought, why not? You know, I like the idea of working for a big company, uh, especially as a high school student. Sounds really like, oh, I'm such an adult. And, you know, 
I, I thought it would be beneficial in starting business. And I, I feel like, um, so I, I worked in this corporate company for a whole year and I just freaking hated it. Like I thought I was going to have an existential crisis um, because I just hated the micromanagement. Uh, I hated the work, the like people were just so bored. <laughs> and so like it was not the culture of enablement that I kind of envisioned. So then when I quit, a lot of my friends were saying to me, oh my gosh, you're so crazy. Like, you know, by second, you don't even know how hard it is to be able to get an internship or a graduate position in your penultimate or final year, right? So it happens when you have a three-year degree. So at the time, I was like, yeah, you know what? Like, I am really lucky. Like, I'm lucky to know what I never want to do again. So after I quit the accounting cadetship, I was looking for other opportunities um, to see what I would be interested in because suddenly I was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't know what I want to be doing. I'm studying accounting and I'm studying business law and both of those things. Like if you look at newspapers or you look online on LinkedIn, it was like JP Morgan designs this software that replaces 360,000 hours of what lawyers do in seconds. And I was like, great. I don't want to do accounting. Probably going to be automated. And now, you know, the legal sector is also going to be automated. <laughs> I was like, crap, what am I doing with my life? But that's, that's also good, right? Like, yeah, it's crazy. As you're talking and say these stories, like, I mean, we've gone through such similar journeys. I, yeah. I did my first internship in uh, mining engineering, and I didn't even finish my industrial training, which is meant to be 60 days to, like, get, yeah. like, to get your degree. I did 30 yeah. days and then quit prematurely because I just couldn't handle it. I was like, I hate this. I never want to yeah. do this again. And yeah. it's crazy. You need to go through that stuff to, I think that it's good. That's the good thing about uni, right? You get to try different things and understand what you don't like and what you do like. But it really is up to the person going through university to seek those real world mm. experiences because I felt really sad for a lot of my friends who, you know, I was like, imagine if I'd gone through and done a double degree or something, like gone through four or five years of you know, study. And then I thought the trajectory of my career is to be an accountant at the end of it. That would be like my age now, you know, and then, or just to go into a legal firm and then to discover later that I hated it. And then I'll probably reach some sort of like quarter life crisis. Um, and then be like, Oh, but now I need stability or whatever it is that society, you know, wants you to be. And then, being like, do I quit or do I not? So it's good that I realized that, you know, first year of uni, you're just like still having fun and you've got the main responsibility of being a student. So you can just do whatever else. Um, so I felt like that was really lucky. So then when I quit, you know, those are the three problems. One, discover what I wanted to do. Two was, you know, a lot of my friends keep nagging like, oh my gosh, you're just you're like, you don't know how lucky you are to have experience. Like, you know, we don't get to, get experience a lot of experience because they always require us to have experience when we don't have any that cash 22 and then the third one was like you know if i'm studying accounting and law business law then how can i make those skills transferable if i'm not going to be going into either of those sectors right um so then when so initially when i was starting austin um, my short story is that that's why Austin was started, blah, blah, blah. But actually, 
I actually tried to, when I quit, my parents were also overseas at the time. And I was like, crap, when they come back and they realize I quit my connection, they're going to kill me. <laughs> I don't know why I always think that they're going to kill me. I don't think they give a shit, but, um, I think, I, always- I think we have a tendency to like overanalyze what our parents are capable of in yeah. terms of, like, yeah. honestly, they wouldn't have cared at all. Like, um, but I just thought like, oh, I got to find something, you know, before they come back. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so during the, the months that they were gone, um, I started applying for ISEC, which is like this uh, global nonprofit organization that organizes, you know, internship opportunities as mm-hmm. well as uh, volunteering opportunities. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, I'm Chinese, right? And Australia is right now, you know, we're currently in the Asian century and Julia Gillard, who was our prime minister at the time, just wrote this white paper that was like Australia, you know, Australia in the Asian century. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm Chinese, might as well go to China, experience what working in China is like. So I applied for ISEC and I said, hey, can you find me an internship position in China so I can work in China for the summer holidays? And they told me, yeah, yeah, like, you know, we do have positions, don't worry, uh, blah, blah, during the interview. But do you want to volunteer teaching English in Hungary? I was like, what? <laughs> My mindset at the time was just like, I just want to do an internship in China. So, and then they were like, oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, do you have placements in China? And I was, they were like, yeah, we have placements, we have placements. But do you want to volunteer in Hungary? They kept asking me, and I was like, no, I don't. And so after the interview, they gave me this, they wrote me this email that was like, hey, you have been rejected from this process. Wow. So what actually didn't tell me what, because I found out a year later when I had started Austria already, the, yeah. uh, the actual president of the ISEC chapter in UNSW was like, hey, can we collaborate with you? Because Austin by then was running career boot camps in China. And they said, hey, can we collaborate and see if we can get some of our students to go through your program? And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. How many placements do you actually have in China? And they, they were like, none. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I was like, wow, you know what? Like if ISEC didn't reject me, I actually wouldn't have started Austin at all. Because... Mm. After they rejected me, I was like, okay, fine. I'll just find my own internship placement, right? And then I thought to myself, where do I even start? And also, I don't want to go by myself. (laughs) So then I asked my friends, literally my um, high school friends, primary school friends, uni friends. uh, Some of those friends actually helped me a lot when Austin officially started. But at the time, I was just like, hey, you guys want to come to... China with me, I'll organize your internship placements, you know, um, pay me $2,000 and, you know, whatever we, I'll organize our accommodation, our internship, like Chinese studies, uh, whatever it is. And, you know, whatever I have remaining, I'll give it back to you. But I estimate our budget to be about $2,000 and Mm -hmm. I'll organize everything. So these 15 friends are like, yeah, cool. Let's do it. Um, and at the time, I didn't account for the fact that a lot of my friends didn't even study the same thing. It wasn't like we were all business students, right? We had someone in like aeronautic engineering, someone in like, like in law as well, or like in um, business or accounting or finance. It was like, crap, how am I going to find, what did I get myself into? 
collected that money and I was like, mm, how am I going to find all these different internships in different industries? So um, instead, and I was like, which city do I even start in? Like my parents are both artists. It's not like they have any connections. So I was like, okay, you know what? What is the most publicly available source? So obviously like um, universities always have public information about their websites and their emails. So that's what I did. I just scraped all of the Dean of International Education because they're the ones that always want international students. Like that's like KPI, right? Um, get as many international students as they can. And so I, I reached out to all the deans in that position, the Dean of International Education in China. And I basically just sent out like 400 emails that was like, hey, in my crappy Chinese like hey, you know, we have 15, 20 Australian students. We love your university. We would love to come and visit. Um, can you also organize internship placements for these different types of, like, industries? And we'll pay you a lump sum and we'll do Chinese cultural studies and you can count us as your students, etc. So the only universities, there was only about three or four universities that eventually got back to us, um, which is a terrible rate. But yeah. well, I mean, but, that, that should be the success rate that you aim for, right? One percent is still one yeah, percent. <laughs> it's still good. One percent, terrible. Uh, I'm sure I got like most of them probably were like also computer issues, like they couldn't read my email, or they got blocked because of Gmail, etc. So yeah, but I mean, you don't need you don't need a hundred replies, right? You need one reply. That's it. You need one reply. Yeah. So that finally went through and it was this university called Liaoning University in Shenyang which never heard of either like, of those places but yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I was like where and then I was like okay let me google this and I was like oh my gosh looking at the map Shenyang is the at the border of North Korea <laughs> <laughs> literally like a two-hour drive um, and you can go to the border but I was like okay Okay, so I Wikipedia Shenyang. Turns out it used to be the capital of China before Beijing. So it had the Imperial Palace, um, and it's the capital of Liaoning Province. And the university, Liaoning University, apparently was top ten in business. Never mind that half my friends didn't study business, but sounded pretty legit. So uh, that's why I said. And a lot of my friends are like, "What Shanghai?" <laughs> I was like, "No, Shenyang." <laughs> And then, um, you know, I was really lucky that a lot of them were just like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's just do it. You know, we have nothing better to do during our summer holidays anyway. Could be fun for all of us to go, right? So then we all went, had a lot of fun and became really good friends with the dean at Liaoning University. And we ended up signing a contract with them to say, hey, we're going to bring more university students back to Liaoning University in their summer and winter holidays. That's actually how Austin started. Dang. Okay. So, I mean, you obviously know it sounds so different <laughs> to what the end result was, right? Um, there were so many issues with that first program that we held, the first official programs, not with my friends, because obviously when you're going with a group of friends, you just have fun. But the first official program, I took 40 students like to Shenyang, Liaoning province. So this was July 2014, like half, like during the winter holidays. 
um, immediately after I went to Shenyang. So, yeah, there were so many things that were that, that was wrong, things that I didn't account for. Uh, I think I probably refunded half their money back. Um, but, yeah, it was... I think it was pretty disastrous and I learned a lot from that experience. And one of the things I learned the most was that I was so frustrated by the internship experience, like being a third party provider of internships was not what I wanted because, you know, um, Downing university would organize the internships with the companies, but then it would be up to the companies to provide value and work for the students. So if they didn't bother providing value for the students, then, it was like super extrapolated in China because they would literally sit them on a boardroom table and they would do nothing, like not even coffee runs or photocopying. Oh my God. Yeah. So, and they don't speak the same language. It was like, you know, even if they were Chinese, it's not like they can do business Chinese. So a lot of the companies are like, what do we do with these foreign students not like they, they're gonna work here afterwards mm. um so for them it was kind of like oh i'll do it for the face you know of um the dean but mm. we don't know so i created small projects for them so when we eventually got out of china and i got jamie on as a business partner i was like how do we control this experience so that it's not reliant on the company to provide value. How can we make sure that no matter who we partner with, it would ha have the same consistent experience and they would gain, gain the same kind of outcomes regardless of which, if they were placed in a big company or a small company or some uh, place where they could do a lot of stuff, et cetera. So then that's how we eventually came up with the three week model of doing two projects in three weeks where we would work with the, with the company um, to see what problem they're facing, but we would go through the steps of the whole design sprint and ideation execution, whatever, and then um, do the workshops and come up with the solution with them. Um, and then they could pitch it back to the company. So then it didn't matter which company they went to, it would be the same experience, right? And they would get, gain the same um, transferable skills, which I always wanted to tackle um, when I first like quit my cadetship job, but didn't know how to implement it into the, the program. Um, that's what it slowly transitioned to. So, I mean, the kind of like company definitely evolved um, as it went along. It was never like, I, I imagined it would be like this and I have to, you know, not work on it until it's perfect. Um, but it just like every program I would be like, holy crap, there's like a hundred issues with this. So we would always have to work. The next iteration of the program would be to fix those hundred problems. And, yeah, and it's also, it's also interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting because I mean, what it ended up becoming and, and the value that certain people got was not necessarily what you intended either. Right. Like, for right. me personally, I mean, the main value that I got as an alumni of Austin was like getting out of my comfort zone, going to a new country and meeting several people and networking with, you know, CEOs of startups because we had to do that fintech bootcamp volunteer thing, which was yeah. actually a really interesting experience. 
Um, yeah. And actually, some of the guys I met for the industry project that you set up, I still talk to yeah. to this day. So <laughs> I think there's some really interesting um, yeah. things that you developed over time. But it sounds like the blueprint for your startups, at least, and I guess like for success with a startup, I think it's very simple. If you have a problem that is very painful to you personally and you find a solution for it that people are yeah. willing to pay for, it, yeah. it's almost difficult to not succeed at that step, right? right. And I think a lot of right. people just don't actually bother to find that problem. Right. Yeah, I would say the two problems, yeah, exactly, the two problems which my two, the two companies or businesses were solving were both just like ones that I wanted for myself and I feel like I always gravitate towards that I'm not necessarily like a entrepreneur that wants to solve something that I can't relate to um so yeah maybe I mean and and then the second thing is that both of the businesses started from nothing right because that's your Mm. ultimate validation point like you know how do you know before you spend all this money creating your business that people are willing to buy it so unless they're willing to pay for it first then yeah, that's your biggest validation. Like if there's something that people would be willing to pay or willing, willing to like, um, before it's even created, then you can figure it out once they've paid you <laughs> with their money. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if they're willing to pay for it, that's a business, right? If it's sustainable. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so what advice would you have for, a student entrepreneur, like what have you learned through that entire process? What do you think that they could take away um, to start their own business or maybe like how to balance things? What advice do you have? Yeah. I mean, I would say, I don't know if this is like um, legit advice, but I would. <laughs> legit <laughs> advice. Yeah. Like, first of all, is um, to just, like, start somewhere. It doesn't have to be a really perfect idea. In fact, it's probably going to be very far from what you imagine it would be. But Mm -hmm. try to be forceful on getting somewhere towards that vision. It's like, I don't have it. If you told me from the beginning to create a program, you know, a three-week program that partners with, like, you know, Dropbox, Spotify, blah, blah, blah. Like, it goes to, like, so many different cities there's no way I would even know where to start because I just did not have those resources um and if I'm a student like how am I going to even approach these people right so then my way of being resourceful was instead of reaching out to companies to reach out to universities um and then starting from there and then leapfrogging from each experience into a a vision that I envision like into a, a product or program that I eventually got it to. Um, yeah. And then the other advice is that, you know, a lot of university students feel like, Oh, you need to create a really big business plan and you need to, um, you know, have all these, this money to get started. Um, but it can be something really simple And it doesn't have to always be an app and getting funding. And I feel like that's a common misconception that you need to always like do a business that is funded. In fact, I feel like it's, you know, underrated for businesses who actually make money. (laughs) 
um, and don't get funding. Yeah. So, you know, what you're like a university's Im- student's image of a business shouldn't be confined to what society lords as successful, like with all the unicorns and tech companies. Um, but there are a lot of different ways to make your own business and to also try out whether this is for you or like other types of small things that you could do. Yeah. And, and it seems like, I mean, just listening to your stories, you kind of prioritize product market fit almost very at the very beginning and getting sales and validation very, very quickly. Right. Like it was almost a week from like you kind of thinking about it to yeah. getting some sort of validation by ping, and you ping your friends, right? That's how you started. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But yeah. You found the need, you like prioritize validating the idea very, very quickly. And then you figure out all the nuts and bolts later. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a, uh, perhaps a tough question. Depends on how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Would you go to university given the option to redo that part of your life? Do you think it's been uh, a useful experience or do you think it's been, it didn't help you in your current track? Um, so I feel like um, actually university has been very helpful, but not in a, traditional sense it was helpful everything with everything but the actual thing that I was studying (laughs) so um, I didn't learn anything from what I was studying I don't remember anything from accounting or business law um, to be honest but the being in university and being surrounded um, or being able to pick and be surrounded by like-minded people is a great way to um, like have an excuse of being a student and also experiment on the side. Like if I had gone straight to work without university, I think it wouldn't have given me that emotional buffer of being able to feel like I could experiment um, without feeling bad that I wasn't, if I wasn't making enough money or if I wasn't working or if, you know, like, when you're working now, you can't just rely on the fact, oh, I'm a student, but I'm doing all these cool things. You've got to be like, oh, I'm like, you know, this title, that title, making this much money. And there's a lot of pressure that comes around with that. So I feel like being in university, they were very supportive in what I was doing, you know, like creating a lot of marketing um, for me. And obviously, like universities help because I am doing a university product. Um, but I also got to meet a lot of friends and I feel like this, like what I said, like the emotional buffer, um, was very, very important because I felt like that was my, I don't know if that makes sense. Like that's my safety net of being a student and being able to experiment. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think I'm in the exact same wavelength. The content was questionable, but the ability to experiment, the freedom, the, yeah. the fact that you didn't have to worry about getting a full-time job because there was no expectation because you're just a student. Right. And and the support network, I think, was like super valuable. And now we're actually seeing yeah. what like a lot of these universities having entrepreneurship departments and things like that, right, to push exactly. this kind of behavior. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's move beyond university. So we've covered Kid Lily, then to mm-hmm. University Lily. Now let's talk about, I would say adult, but slightly 
less childish. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was really cool was I read this article when you first pushed it out, um, and then I reread it yesterday, and I downloaded a habit app, like you said in the article. And I started doing it again just because I was reading through your stuff and I was like, yeah, she's actually right. But I want to talk a little bit about habit building and yeah. like why, why did you decide in 2019 that you were going to start building these habits? Yeah. So I felt like um, last year I went through a lot of changes and I was, you know, I moved to Singapore, I moved companies you know, I started working for a new campus. I was doing a lot of different things every day. And then I also met my partner. Then we decided to go traveling. And then, you know, a lot of those things were always changing. And I like to, I always feel like um, I feel best when I can be consistent with something and not just like starting one thing and, and not finishing it, uh, which is uh, what I tend to do a lot, actually, now that I think about it. But I wanted to change that, right? Like I wanted to be... Um, feel like I didn't have to always be pursuing like huge projects, but actually, you know, small actions or small habits over a long period of time would um, provide the exponential impact that I wanted. Um, and I had to do a lot of, you know, even though you hear that all the time possibly, but I had to do a lot of, you know, rewiring of myself to feel like, Oh, if I didn't see any outcome in three days, then I'm just going to go and skip to something else. So I wanted to build the habit of consistency and being just like consistently doing something and not being worried about the final result. Um, but understanding that it's those small changes that will ultimately like it's every action that you do that will build you to become the person that you want to be. Right. It's not like one action that will make you, who you are is always like the daily habits or like the daily things that you reiterate to yourself that will allow you to shift to be the person that you want to be. Yeah, that makes sense. So then you decided to make all these shifts. Then, then how did you decide, what was your game plan for keeping yourself accountable and building these habits? And, and what are some of the habits that you decided to, to build up? Um, so, I mean, I didn't have a game plan. I was just reading the Tiny Habits um, book, The Power of Habits by James Clear. And it was a really, like, it was a really, you know, impactful book for me because there are a lot of things in my life that I wanted to um, be aware of to change. And, um, for example, one was, like, being, like, healthier um, in terms of, you know, whether it's daily exercise or, um, you know, my food intake or whatever, and not putting so much pressure on whether I screw up or not. So what James Clear said um, in the book that really, like, was made habit creation very successful for me was that each habit should um, only take less than two minutes. And so I made habits that would take me less than 30 seconds because I feel like two minutes is even too long. Um, so that it's like impossible to not do them. And, you know, I just created, like, I just started off with three habits and then I would build on, as I got used to them, then I would build on more habits that I wanted to see. So stuff like reading, I would read one page a day at least. So 
um, even if I would take, like I would tell myself, you know, if you just read one page, that's, that's it. That's my reading for the day. So if I do read, uh, if I do feel like reading after I read that one page, I keep on reading. Um, and if I really cannot be bothered reading that day, I'll just read one page and that's it. Um, but the, the idea is that these are, you know, gateway habits. Instead of being like, I'm going to exercise an hour a day, the gateway habit is something that will shift your inertia so that you can um, go and do it. So, for example, his example is that if you really can't be bothered exercising, it's tying, like putting on your shoes and tying your shoelaces. Um, and then by the time you finish that, you're probably going to go and exercise. Um, yeah. So, for me, it was like opening my yoga app or like, um, you know, floss one tooth. <laughs> because if you're going to floss one tooth, you might as well floss every tooth tooth right so yeah that's how i started building other habits and i still floss to this day nice that's awesome and, <laughs> and and now that you say that because i was setting up my habits yesterday and now yeah. i realize i think i've done them wrong so i'm going to get your opinion on my habits right first one is weigh myself which i think is fairly easy, easy. less than yeah. 30 seconds log yeah. all food eating is that a good habit is that the gateway or like um yeah so i ended up logging my food for a year um i only recently stopped logging my food because i felt like it wasn't helping me anymore mm -hmm. but logging my food was really helpful for me um uh, because i could be aware of what i was eating and i you know i would tell myself i'm not going to judge what i'm eating i'm just going to be aware and the fact that i was just like i didn't it didn't change the way that i ate or consciously changed the way that I ate, but, um, like sometimes I would swap with healthier food options, etc. But yeah, I would write in, um, log for food eating. I would just say log after like during, before I eat. That was my habit. Okay. Fair enough. So yeah. do you think, do you think you can make habits out of like negative things? For example, if I was to say, um, I'm trying to think of something, don't, don't eat junk food. Like how, how do you make that a habit where you, you don't do something? If you get what I mean. Yeah. Um, there's a really good habit app. I don't know if you've heard of it called Habitica. Um, and it's split into three categories. One is like, um, habits so and it has a plus and a negative so it's just like unlimited number of habits that you want to build so for example drink water every time you drink water you can press a plus button and it will give you points and then it, it can also be a negative thing like um like don't eat junk food and if you eat junk food you then press the negative one right okay yeah. interesting and then so they have the kind of habits one and then they have a second category, which is for your daily habits. So things that you do once a day, um, you know, things like meditate or yoga or floss, etc. That would count as a daily. And then, and you can even do it as a weekly or a monthly, etc. depending on um, how often you want to do these things. And then the third category is just like um, tasks. So you can tick it off as a, so it's a gamified habit tracker. Um, and then you can also do it with your friends. You can do like, it's like got this whole, like you can collect 
animals and you can um, do like quests and stuff with your friends. But anyway, it's like basically like a productive Pokemon Go kind of feel. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Interesting. Something I'm going to check out tonight. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So thank you so much for sharing about your journey and about building habits. And the way I like to end these podcasts is to get your opinion on a resource that people should check out, whether it be a book, podcast, a speaker. Is there any resource that you think that people would benefit from? Yeah, Um, I have a few recommendations. The the book I recommended before, um, the Tiny Habits book um, by James Clear, Atomic Habits, that's the book name, Atomic Habits. Um, super good book if you want to get started on habit building Um, yeah and I mean I have a lot of like I read a lot of uh, books but I don't know how helpful it is I've been reading um, a lot of like Disney Disney's leadership book by um, Bob Iger which is really really good Um, educated by Tara Westover really really um, awesome book um but oh a resource that i feel like everyone should be watching on netflix they have so many really good documentaries um which really change like your perspective i feel like so i've been watching this series called dirty money um and it basically uses like investigative journalism to really try to find both perspectives of um global issues like things that you like things that you wouldn't ever really think twice about and things that you already feel like oh that's just a part of society or that's part of nature um so that's a really really good book yeah i mean really really good um netflix series i would highly recommend it and also explained also a really good series awesome looking forward to it so again thank you so much for coming on the podcast and i hope everyone learned a lot by I guess learning about Lily's personal journey in entrepreneurship and also in habit building. Um, and if you want to reach out to her, how can they um, get in contact with you? Yeah. Um, can reach out to me on LinkedIn, um, which is just Lily Wu. And then on Instagram, which my handle is it's Lily Wu. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Startup House. Remember, keep exploring, connecting, and inspiring. If you want to get more involved with us, follow us at draperstartuphouse.com. That is draperstartuphouse.com. Or follow me at ajprakash.net. A-J-A-Y prakash.net. See you next time.